Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus, increment 105, joints and marrow, harmonte kai muelon, joints and marrow. You probably see that as a translation in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. And we're going to tackle that phrase and then connect it to an unusual universalism that's usually unacknowledged in this passage, both this message and perhaps into 106. Father, we thank you today for yet another opportunity to engage your word and in doing so to enter into fellowship with you and your son and we recognize whenever we do this, we are fellowshipping together and we are in danger of coming into the fullness of joy, according to 1 John 3, 4. We thank you, Father, for your grace, for your kindness in Christ Jesus. We pray for any among us who is about to fall that you'll keep them from falling, for any among us who has fallen that you'll lift them up. You'll do so as, a as an answer to our request today. May your word travel forth now with power and with clarity, with precision, and with profound edification among the believers who receive it. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 4.12 so far reads like this. Indeed, the word of God is currently living and active and sharper than every double-edged blade, even penetrating as far as a separation of soul and spirit. Then it says joints and marrow. We're about ready to modify and perhaps even correct that little phrase. And it's able to judge the deliberations and determinations of the heart determinations, deliberations, and determinations. And I want you to connect this, I want us to connect this, with a terminology having to do with neurology, and that is the word action potentials. Action potentials, both deliberations and especially determinations are action potentials. They are thoughts and intentions that lead to actions. So the Word of God is able to judge or critically assess, we might say, the deliberations and determinations of the heart. We've re recognized the heart to be the rational, intentional human consciousness, especially on its fourth and fifth levels. And so I would translate this not so much joints and marrow, as nerve fibers and myelin. That's M-Y-E-L-I-N. The Greek word here, M-U-E-L-O-N, translated marrow, doesn't quite get it. There is a term in neurology that we're going to apply today called myelin, which does more capture the precision of what's intended here. 
And what is intended is a disclosure of the interconnectedness of all created reality. And that the word of God is a critical assessor of all things. Once again then, indeed the word of God is currently living and active, sharper than every double-edged blade, even penetrating as far as separation of soul and spirit, nerve fibers, and myelin. Now myelin, and I'm entering into an area that I do not have expertise, in which I'm not so conversant, so instead of pretending I know a lot about it, I'm just going to mention the little I know about it. Myelin here refers to the expediters of the action potentials into action in any nervous system, not just of humans, but of animal kind. And it corresponds here to the intentions of the human rational intentional consciousness. And so we're dealing a little bit here in the anthropology of the scriptures, which is an anthropology, which is a branch of theology, which is a science. Theology is a science. As a branch of science, there is anthropology. Under anthropology, there is neurology and psychology. We're also going to be entering into the theology called, or the branch called cosmology, which has to do with the universal creation, part of the science called theology, of which there must be a revival in our time. Just as there remains now, as we've seen, a Sabbath observance for the people of God, even now. So even now, the word of God is living. And that means, among other things, that it is vitally relevant for our own time. It's active, energetic, we could even say, operational, currently operational. In Hebrews 4.12, we're presented with a picture of what I call the universal human being. Now, when I say universal human being, I'm talking about one human being in their universal essence or being, including spirit, soul, body. And so the Word of God is able to penetrate into the division of the innermost immaterial parts of the total human being. It is for the human being, or as Jesus said it, the Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath was made to be beneficial to humankind. Now what we're doing here is we're loosely connecting the idea of the Sabbath with the Word of God because as the Word of God penetrates into the being of man and into the 
total being of the man or the woman. It makes a separation so that it ensures our operation in the highest part of our interior being, which is the spirit. So just as there remains a Sabbath observance, Hebrews 4, 9 through 11, for the people of God, even now, so even now the word of God is vitally relevant and currently operational. It has an effect not only to the separation of the soul and the spirit, but it has a profound effect on the very nervous system, the neurology of the human being. And ultimately what it does is it calms what we used to call nervousness or anxiety and prevents unnecessary motions, unnecessary impulses, but promotes actions that are beneficial. So the Word of God has a way to allow our flesh to rest in hope, our bodies to have the effects of an interior harmony and peace. So just as there remains a Sabbath observance for the people of God even now, so now, even now, right now, the Word of God is vitally relevant and currently operational. And again, in Hebrews 4.12 and on into 4.13, we're presented with a picture of the universal human being or the total person. Inasmuch as the word of God is able to penetrate to the division of the innermost immaterial parts of man for whom the Sabbath was made. Mark 2.27. The word of God is able to critically assess the deliberations and the determinations of the heart. It can detect, for example, the direction of the heart's intention toward what the Bible calls a way that seems right to a person, but that leads to death. That's Proverbs 14.12 and Romans 8.6a. The intention of the flesh... The intention of the flesh often presents a way that seems right to a human being. But the Word of God can critically assess that and keep us from entering into a way that seems right but leads to death. For the mind or the intention of the flesh is death, but the mind or the intention of the spirit is life and peace. Both of those are found in Romans 8, 6, a verse well worth meditating on. So the word of God is able to critically assess the deliberations and determinations of the heart and can detect the direction of the heart's intention toward a way that seems right to that person but would ultimately lead to death. And so the word of God that's capable of saving actually prevents us and checks and balances us by preventing us from taking an action, deliberating and determining on an action that would ultimately bring about our death or some terrible circumstances. It may even prevent someone from marrying the wrong person, for example. Especially if someone intends to marry someone else 
solely on the basis of physical attraction or so-called chemistry. And so the word of God is able to assess the heart's deliberations and detect if the direction of the heart is either toward a way that seems right to a person but leads to death or if the heart is intending already to the way of truth in 2 Peter 2.2 and 2 John 1.4, 3 John 1.4, which, again, is the intentionality and the mindset of the spirit, which ends up in life and peace in Romans 8.6b. Now, there's a phrase, again, I want to look at this, joints and marrow. We've partly neglected it in Hebrews 4.12, and it's usually translated joints and marrow. Now, I've said that there may be an oblique reference to the knife here, the blade used in animal sacrifices. I stand by that, especially after researching and looking into Exodus 29, 17 to 18. I recommend you look that up, along with Leviticus 1, 6, Leviticus 11, 111, and 112. More importantly, however, the addition of this phrase to soul and spirit discloses an often unacknowledged universalism or a cosmology of universal interconnectedness or solidarity between all beings, all created beings. This universalism is demonstrated by first showing the connectedness of the interior components of the rational, intentional being called the human being and the human being's connectedness with created beings, which includes animal beings, for example. Genesis talks about the creation of creeping things, reptiles, four-legged animals, and even insects, animals of the sea, mammals, fish, etc. And there is a connectedness. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 15, there's many kinds of flesh, animal flesh, bird flesh, human flesh. In Hebrews 4:12 to 13, there's a connection between the universal human being, that means all that constitutes a total individual person, with all created beings, and then with all of created reality. It speaks to an connectedness or even an interconnectedness of all of creation and of all creatures. We could say in reference to James Harriet's famous book, All Creatures Great and Small. The division of invisible soul and spirit is analogous to the division of the physiological joints and myelin. Joints, harmon, H-A-R-M, long O-N, is sort of, it's sort of self-explanatory, but not really. If we get into the realm of neurology, joints is 
moelan, and it's related to the English anatomical term myelin, as we've seen already, M-Y-E-L-I-N, which in modern medicine and neurology refers to the sheath that encloses nerve fibers. Myelin is a fatty material that encloses a nerve fiber and that increases the rate at which electrical impulses called action potentials are passed along the axon. Now, I'm speaking simply from the American Heritage College Dictionary, 5th edition here, page 126, the axon being a process of a nerve fiber that conducts impulses away from the body of a nerve cell. In other words, what I see here is an analogy between the division of soul and spirit and the intentions of the heart in the soul and the spirit and a distinction between the sheath that covers these nerve fibers and the nerve fibers themselves that contain action potentials. In other words, he's talking about nerve impulses which are both cognizant in human beings or they are something that we can detect in human beings neurology as well as in animals neurology. So what captures the attention, at least that which captured my attention here, is the phrase action potentials. Because of the relation of action potentials in nerve function to the deliberations and determinations of the intentional consciousness of which the Word of God is a critical assessor. Because thoughts precede intentions, and intentions lead to actions, the determinations of the heart that follow deliberation, and remember, deliberation happens as a result of reflection. Reflection happens to be about insights. Insights happen to come about through inquiry. And so the determinations that follow deliberation can be compared to the electrical impulses of the nervous system, which are called action potentials. These action potentials of the nervous system of all kinds of creatures, great and small, including human beings, is analogous to the deliberations and determinations of the heart, which are discerned through a division of soul and spirit that only applies to human beings. Animals have a soul of sorts. That's why it's called an anima, the soul. Animals do not have that which we would call the spirit, which is joined to the Holy Spirit in mankind, not per se. In the human being, there is a higher integration of the animal. When man rejects the word of God, he tends to descend into the lower integration and becomes ultimately animalized. This is what happened to Nero, for example, Nero Caesar, and it's the reason why he exemplified the title, The Beast, in Revelation a moniker that also applied to the bestial tyranny of Rome. A government can even take on a bestial quality. 
and did so at the time of the writing of Revelation and of Hebrews. There's a great commonality between Revelation and Hebrews in terms of the time in which it was, they were written. So we're dealing here not only with biblical anthropology, but with anatomy and even with neurology. And we're only touching on it because, as far as my teaching, I'm certainly not conversant with neurology. But there's enough in the theology of Hebrews to reveal that, again, there is an analogy between the blade of the Word of God that cuts and divides between soul and spirit and between the sheath that houses nerve processes and the processes themselves. That takes one hell of a sharp blade. To make that distinction. Now picture us as being an animal sacrifice. Picture us as being a living human sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Our joints and myelin as a living sacrifice in Romans 12.1 are analogous to the soul and spirit which the word of God divides and separates. We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God in Romans 12.1. And so we are presenting to God our total being. When it says body, that's a synecdoche for our total being, our total personhood. And so we're allowing, by that sacrifice, we're allowing the priest to cut us to pieces only in an analogy. He is allowed to separate joints from marrow and critically assess our inward thoughts and intentions, deliberations and determinations. Again, I think Daniel is one of the best examples of how deliberation relates to determination because he deliberated in his mind about the king menu that he and his friends were supposed to take partake of. But he, after deliberating, decided not to partake of the king's menu, and he therefore determined not to, developed his own menu, and ended up showing strength and robustness more than those who were under the king's menu. I think another great illustration of this is the Apostle Paul himself having deliberated on the fact that Jesus' death encompassed all human beings. If one died, all died. Then that deliberation related to and resulted in a determination in his heart to let the love of Christ control him to the degree that he would no longer know any person after the flesh. Now, because thoughts precede intentions and intentions lead to actions, the determinations of the heart that follow deliberation can be compared to the electrical impulses of the nervous system, which are called action potentials. I'm repeating because this is stuff that took me a long time to even wrap my brain slightly around it. The action potentials of the nervous system of all kinds of creatures... is analogous to the deliberations and determinations of the human heart, which are discerned through a division of soul and spirit 
that only applies to human beings. Now, though the human being does not share his rational, intentional consciousness with animals, the human being does have in common with the animal, the animal soul, or anima, and the joints and myelin of neurological function. So to sum up, armon te kai muelon, usually translated joints and marrow, in this Greek text, refers to a separation that the uniquely sharp word of God makes in the human interior that's analogous to the interior anatomical function of many other beings besides humans. The whole point of all this that I'm saying is there is an interconnectedness of all created beings. Humans, subhumans, all the way down to the quark, Q-U-A-R-K, which is theoretically the smallest component of material existence. And when you think of it this way, let me jump to the conclusion of this. If all things are to be summed up in Christ Jesus, that means all created reality and not just all of humanity. So all of creation is anticipating a liberation from what science calls entropy, which is the tendency in the universe toward death, essentially. So, we're jumping ahead there. Let's back up slightly. To sum up, Armon or Harmon Te Kai Muelan refers to a separation that the Word of God makes in the human interior that is analogous to the interior anatomical function of many other beings besides humans. The penetration of the division of soul and spirit would lead to the separation of spiritual listeners in this Hebrews homily and in our own time, the penetration of the division of soul and spirit would lead to the separation of the spiritual listeners from the first system which God took away, a system of sacrifices. The spiritual Christian would recognize that it was time to separate from the animal sacrifices, which was a first system of sacrifices, which is taken away to open room for the second, which is a once and for all and forever self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who took away sin once and for all. And this would lead to a new orientation to the second system, which is related to the better, the new, and the everlasting, not evanescent, covenant. In one very general sense, the soulish person is only occupied with the evanescent, 
while the spiritual person is orientated to the everlasting, the eternal even, because that's where the spirit of faith is. The spirit of faith looks not upon the things that are seen, but upon the things that are unseen, not upon things that are merely transient, but things that are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Hebrews 11. One also goes into that. Now, the same division of soul and spirit allows Christians to discern, for example, in our time, the metaphorical meaning of Scripture and distinguish it from the literal whenever it's necessary to do so. Without this differentiation, the preacher's words often become perceived as scandalous, such as Jesus' words when he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. That was scandalous to his listeners who couldn't discern the metaphorical or figurative from the literal. Now, people that can't discern the metaphorical from the literal have all kinds of wrong conceptions about a place called hell, for example. People who can't discern the literal from the figurative have all kinds of trouble in teaching the Word of God, interpreting the Word of God, and reading the Bible even. So there is a scripturally documented distinction between Christians who are operative solely in the soul. They're called psuchikos in 1 Corinthians 2.14 all the way really through 3.4 where there's an additional category called sarkikos which is a Christian under the control of the flesh which Paul identifies as a personalized enemy. That person becomes sequacious. They become intellectually enslaved to the world system and the world view of the spirit of the age. They can't help themselves. So there's this a scripturally documented distinction between Christians who are operative solely in the soul and those who are operative in the spirit. The word of God is consequently shown to be that which penetrates and scrutinizes the entire human being, as it also sees and oversees all beings and scrutinizes the entire processes of every level of the material creation from the vast movements of the nearly infinite reaches of the celestial heavens all the way to the intricate movements and action potentials in the nerve fibers of the human body in the dolphin, the whale shark or whatever other creature swallowed and then expectorated Jonah the lion, the lamb, the dove, the locust, the reptile, down to the molecular, the atomic, the subatomic, and the quark, Q-U-A-R-K, being the hypothetical fundamental units of matter. 
I want to say that again because the Word of God isn't afraid of science and it presents a rebuke to scientism. The Word of God is consequently shown to be that. This is repetition which penetrates and scrutinizes the entire human being as it also sees and oversees all at once and at all times all beings and scrutinizes all the processes of every level of the material creation from the vast movements of the nearly infinite reaches of the celestial heavens all the way to the intricate, almost infinitesimal movements and action potentials in the nerve fibers of the human body, the dolphin, the whale shark, the lion, the lamb, the dove, the locust, the reptile, down to the molecular, the atomic, and the subatomic levels. As Hebrews 1, 10 to 12 says, if we want to recall that passage, which quotes Psalm 102, 25 to 27, or the Septuagint of 101, 26 to 28. In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. And like a cloak, you will roll them up. You'll change them like a garment. But you are the same, and your years will never come to an end. This is speaking of the changing of the universe when God makes it new for eternal life and when he eternalizes the universe by having Christ comprise it all. But it also implies the change of priestly garments that goes from the priestly garment of Aaron to the priestly garment of the priest like Melchizedek, a garment which we see the Son of Man wearing, arguably, in Revelation 1, 12 to 16. Incidentally, he has a sword proceeding from his mouth as well, rumphiah which in that case is pretty much interchangeable with Makaira, the word of God. We've previously noted in an allusion in this passage to the change of priesthoods, therefore, that would certainly have universal or cosmic theological significance. There was a change of priesthood because there was a change of sacrifice from the animal sacrifices or the sacrifices offered in the temple complex in Jerusalem, to the once and for all and forever self-sacrifice of the great high priest, Jesus Christ, who, as the Lamb of God, took away the sin of the cosmos. That's the sin of the whole universe, as we may see down the road just a little bit. You'll change them like a garment, again, implies or at least points to and alludes to the change of priestly garments. As there is an allusion to the change of priesthoods and priestly garments, you can see Exodus 28, 4, Exodus 29, 5, and 6, 
and compare that with Revelation 1.12, on which Matthew Henry comments and says, one, he was clothed with a garment down to the foot, a princely and priestly robe, denoting righteousness and honor. Two, he was girt about with a golden girdle, the breastplate of the high priest, on which the names of his people are engraven. That's a quote from Matthew Henry, complete with older English. So in this cosmological passage in Hebrews, we have a hint at the change of priesthoods and we also have that same hint in Hebrews 4.12 to 13, a change which becomes far more apparent in Hebrews 4.14, where Jesus, the Son of God, is said to be a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens. He's not like the priest of the Old Testament that enters in through the outer court, into the middle court, the inner court, and then into the court of innermost holiness or utmost holiness, an earthly tabernacle. No, this, our great high priest, has passed through the heavens into the holy of holies or the place of utmost holiness above the heavens called heavenlies, the heavenly holy of holies. And this explains again why there is no non sequitur. There isn't a break really between the word of God in 4.12, every creature in 4.13, and the great high priest, our Lord Jesus, the Son of God in 4.14, and on and on. Let's consider it this way. The word of God passes through to a division of soul and spirit. The word of God personified, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has passed through the heavens separating, therefore, the outer and inner court, the soul, from the innermost holy of holies, the spirit. That's an analogy. It was just created right now. So it's an analogy. And so, therefore, there is a connection between the personal word of God, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the word of God, the spoken word of God, in Hebrews 4.12, contrary to what a lot of commentators seem to indicate. They don't give much room for the word of God being actually referenced to Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God, and there's at least an oblique reference there to him. The word of God passes through the innermost parts of the human being, and the most microscopic parts of all creatures are scrutinized by the eyes of the Creator. This is a well-balanced picture of the omniscience of God as well as his omnipresence. Now, the most microscopic parts of all creatures and the division between the myelin and the nerve fiber even is a microcosm. This microcosm is balanced by the macrocosm of the heavens and the earth, or the vast reaches of the universe. And so we're looking at all celestial and terrestrial reality, 
which is under the jurisdiction of God and his word. As all of celestial and terrestrial reality has been brought into being by God in his Son and by his Spirit and is totally under his control and subject to his transformative and transfigurative power. So in the telos, T-E-L-O-S, that's found in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, in the end, in the consummation of all things, in the end, in the moment of miraculous universal consummation, Jesus will comprise not only all of human reality, but all of created reality. And because God dwells in his Son and is pleased to do so, God will dwell in all of the reality that Jesus Christ comprises, and therefore God will be all in all. In 1 Corinthians 15, 28, in that moment, listen to this sublime phrase under a quotation by a quotation of Jürgen Moltmann in The Coming of God once again. In that moment, quote, the consummation brings back everything that had ever been before. Brings back everything that had ever been before. Only, of course, without the sinfulness, without the corruptibility, without the, Im without the mortality. That includes people and pets. So as we close, that famous word from Deuteronomy 32, 39 and, and elsewhere throughout the Targums, I, I in my word, as God speaks. And that refers us back to doing and living theology where we considered the word, capital W-O-R-D, the logos, in the psychological analogy. The word spoken by God remains in God. The eternal word is God inextricably linked with God. Because his word is God. God is, as to his being and essence, the word. While at the same time, the word who is God and is of the same being and essence with the Father is also distinct from the Father as to person. He is a person with two natures, and his notional acts, notional acts is a word, a technical term in theology, notional, and that refers generally to, for example, there are acts performed by Jesus, the Son of God, that are unique to him, notional acts. And so, though he is one in being, act, name, and essence with the Father, there are also notional acts performed only by the person of the Son who has two natures, human and divine. 
So the living and active word of God indeed has attributes that are identical to the person who is called the word of God, also known as the memra, also known as the logos. In one sense, the word is distinct from the person of Jesus in that it proceeds out of his mouth as a double-edged blade or rumphia, double-edged sword, broadsword in Revelation 1.6. But in another sense, the word that proceeds from his mouth is one and essence and being in activity with Jesus because as he gives life, so his words are words of life and they are spirit and life. As God is a spirit and as he is the living God, the word of God, is as vitally relevant today and as energetic and operational today and is speaking as emphatically and clearly now as he did when he spoke to the churches in western Turkey during the impending crisis of A.D. 70 and as he spoke through David in Psalm 94 in the Septuagint and as he spoke in Hebrews into a critical time, and as he is speaking even now, right now, into a critical turning point of history in our nation and in our world, the word of God is alive and it's powerful. Sharp and penetrating, scrutinizing and operational. And the Holy Spirit, whose voice we hear in the word, is the age-abiding spirit in Hebrews 9.14, as Jesus is the age-abiding great high priest and the eternal word of God made flesh. Now, I've said many things today, and they may seem to be scattered We've talked about things that have touched on anatomy, neurology. We've touched on biblical anthropology. And we're going into a more thorough view or a more detailed view of biblical cosmology under the basic thesis that God's creation, his universal creation, is only completed by an act of redemption. That's coming up. So, Father, we thank you for this challenge in which we've entered into new territory today, in which the machete of the word has cut new paths through the woods, as it were. We pray that you'll open our hearts to receive more in-depth truth from you, and so that the exposition of your word will give understanding to us, for we ask it in Christ's name, amen.